As we ended John last week, I was, I was kind of sad to, that we were ending John. And then I realized that this Sunday was my Sunday, and I got to start the book of Titus. And what a blessing it is to, to dive into God's Word and to share it with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Paul wrote Titus, and that was somehow debatable by some scholar at some point as to the, his authorship because they, they felt like it wasn't, it, it wasn't doctrinally rich as the other epistles that he had written, but we will quickly find out that that's not the case. And, and another thing to consider is that Paul wrote this to an individual. It wasn't to like a church or a group of people. This was written to an individual uh, just as First and Second Timothy and Philemon. So Philemon stands alone in, in, uh, in Paul's epistles. It, it basically is like, hey, I'm sending your runaway slave back, and I need you to be nice because he's, he's your brother now. And the other two are instructions to continue the work that Paul had started in, with Timothy and, and Titus. Paul wrote at least 13, debatably 14 books in the New Testament. That's over half or half, around half. This was the second to the last letter that he had written. He was getting up in age, and he was leaving these instructions. He was, he was leaving these instructions for Titus to, to establish and minister in the churches of Crete. He outlines the qualifications for elders, he encourages Titus to be confident. He encourages them to call out false teachers, which would be dividing the church. Above all, he emphasizes the need for the truth and godliness, the orthodoxy of belief in a redeemed life, the true praise of a believer, which validates the truth of God. These were instructions to Titus. So we're... Titus 1, we're going to be, Lord willing, going through verses 1 to 3. And if you're able, I ask that you please stand as we read and give honor to God's Word. This is the inspired and fallible Word of the living God. Let us hear the Word of our Lord. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through the preaching, which was committed to me, to the command, according to me, to the commandment of God our Savior. Well, merciful Father, as we begin this book, we just ask that you would Bless the teaching of your word. Merciful Father, use your servant. Far be it from me that you would use a sinful man to stand before your children to even utter a single word that is yours. Lord, bless the congregation. Give us ears to hear. Let the Spirit of God move within us to illumine this passage to our hearts. We love you and we praise your holy name. And it's in Christ's name we all pray. All of God's children said. So Paul. 
It's first mentioned in the, the, the book of Acts in chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. He was referred to as Saul at that point, and Stephen was one of the seven deacons chosen back in chapter 6. Stephen quickly answered the call to preach, and uh, after his first ser- sermon, it led to his death via stoning. His, his time as a pastor or a preacher didn't last long. Saul was the man that stood by the, the clothes of the people. They, they took off their garments to, to stone Stephen, and he laid them at the feet of Saul. In Acts 8, it says that he approved the stoning, which means he carried some kind of authority. And he goes on to tell us how he persecuted the Jews, or the Christians. He persecuted the, the, the church in chapter 9. And then he was headed to to Damascus with letters that he may arrest more Christians. And then we see where Christ, the Lord Jesus, stopped him dead in his tracks. Immediately, Saul goes, Lord, he referred to him as Lord. He knew he was in the presence of God. We see this accusation that that Saul is persecuting Jesus. He's, He's torturing the body of Christ. We also see that the Spirit of God had been at work within Saul because Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharp stick used to control an animal. R.C. Sproul likens it to controlling a donkey. Goading is is a way to control an animal. It was a sharp stick. You poke it to get it to go where you wanted or to do what you wanted to do. By Christ using this term goad, he's basically saying, look, you dumb animal, stop kicking against the goads. And when you kick against the goads, the, the, the stick goes deeper and it causes more pain. He's, he's saying, Saul, you're inflicting more pain upon yourself by, by denying me. Saul is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness at, at this point. But he apparently had some inkling of knowledge, the knowledge of Christ. In short, Jesus, you're fighting me, Saul, you're mine. Saul is converted and then called. His name later, we refer to him as Paul. Saul is a Jewish name and Paul is a Greek name. He had a dual citizenship. Being an apostle to the Gentiles, Romans eleven thirteen says it makes more sense for him to be referred to as Paul. He was, he was commissioned to the Gentiles at that point. Paul could have mentioned any number of things to which to identify himself. He was a brilliant scholar. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most prominent teachers of the time, leading, a leading authority in the Sanhedrin. He was also a Jewish leader. He's very learned in Greek literature and philosophy. He could have mentioned his dual citizenship. That was a big deal. That, that was a, a, a huge deal back then. His apostolic calling was unique in and of itself, and, but he was, he was granted full authority with the other 11 apostles. He could have boasted about being called up to the, the third heaven in 2 Corinthians, in which he had mentioned his boasting was, was in Christ. He could have mentioned the miracles that he performed. And what did he do? He says, Paul, a bondservant of God. Doulos in the Greek, a slave, a bondman, 
a man of service, someone devoted to another, to the disregard of one's own interest. He was sold out completely to God. This, this word is a derivative of the word deo, which means to bind or fasten with chains. We're no longer a slave to sin, but bound to God in full servitude. He could have commanded some type of respect mentioning any of his accomplishments, but he identifies himself as a slave, the lowest rung on the pole. He refers to himself as a doulos in Romans, Galatians, and Philippians. You know, I, I meet a lot of people in the line of work that I'm in, and they could, I guess it's just a pet peeve of mine. They, they introduced themselves as I'm, I'm pastor so-and-so. And in my mind, I'm like, well, what does that matter at this point? And I guess it's just my little thing. But I wonder if my response would be, well, I'm Elder Francis of Shepherd's Rock Bible Church. I studied at the feet of Dr. Joshua Banks that hails from the city of Gate. You know, it's like, <laughs> what, what are we supposed to do, you know? Um, and a lot of people have that mentality. Like, you know, my neighbor moves in next door, and my wife calls me, and he's like, well, this guy came over and talks to He He has the same profession as me. I'm, I'm a mechanic, if you don't know. But he, he starts talking about all these certifications that he's got. And he tells my wife, like, she like she would know half of it. And and I'm like, well, cool, I guess. You know, maybe maybe we can talk. Well, he comes, and I'm Jake. I have, you know, all this stuff. And it's like... In my, my mind, I'm like, and I'm like, oh, well, nice to meet you. I'm Jason, you know, and I have like all the same certifications. It's just like, but what does it matter? You know, so it's, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to Christ. Josh is a slave to Christ. Another reason he may have identified himself as, as this doulos is, He's identifying himself with the Old Testament men of God. John calls Moses the servant of God, the Lord. He spoke of Moses as my servant. Joshua was called the servant of God. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals it to his secret counsel to the servants of the prophets. Down in verse 10 here in in Titus, we see the the Judaizers, or those who are the circumcision, is that what they're referred to, are stirring up trouble. They would have seen the significance of, of Paul saying, I'm a servant of God, I'm a slave of God. Maybe. We're all servants of God when we come to the faith in Christ. We're freed, freed from sin and enslaved to God. Which in reality, this being a slave to God is the highest freedom that anyone can have. Sold out. The law, which had been a curse, becomes a delight to us when our lives have been transformed by the gospel of the Holy Spirit. We were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.21 tells us. Let's look at 1 Peter. Chapter 1. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold 
from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish and without spot. I'll just read the next one too. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. We were redeemed by something far greater than anything we can know in this world. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians 5, verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We were no longer alive to ourselves in and of ourselves. We live to Christ by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is the, the doulos, the servant of God. And to what degree is he the servant? He goes on to say, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a servant sent by, the, by God's own son, he's this apostle, one who is sent. Apostleship was only conferred to a few people. One of the two requirements was to have seen the risen Christ and been commissioned by him. Paul's encounter on the Damascus Road qualifies him in both aspects. Romans 1.1 says he was separated to the gospel of God. This letter was written to Titus after 1 Timothy and just before 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was the last epistle. Paul is, is nearing the end. His race is almost complete. He was driven by this desire to be an obedient servant right up until the end. You guys carry on. This is what you're to do. Paul counted his bondage as a blessing, his suffering as a blessing. Philippians 2.17 says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering to the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Let's go to Acts 20. Verses 22 and 24, or 22 to 24. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying the chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The Holy Spirit says chains and, and trouble await you, yet he's not swayed. It doesn't concern him. He longs to finish that race well with joy, to finish his ministry appointed by Christ as an apostle. Apostle is apostolos. means messenger often. is used as a lowly title used to convey a message. And then, but in this instance... It's a, it, it refers to a special messenger, an ambassador sent with an authoritative message. Paul had authority, not in and of himself. 
He carries the authority of another, Christ. He is the one sent by Christ, carrying the authority of Christ with the message of Christ. He's speaking on Christ's behalf. Acts 9, if you want to turn back there. See the baptism of Saul from 10 to 19. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell, on, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and Saul Spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. So Saul's vision is restored. He's baptized. And soon after, he's commissioned as an ambassador of Christ. Again, calling himself a bondservant wasn't just out of humility. It carried some authority. It would carry authority to the Jews that were in Crete. And as apostle of Jesus Christ, he had established authority to the, to the Gentiles that would be in Crete. A true leader of Christ's church will have a deep awareness that they are under divine authority. Any Christian is under divine authority. A leader would not, would not seek any personal gain or, or favoritism or wealth it's not chasing after worldly things. They're content. Content in being slaves of God who called them. So we have this bond servant of apostle commissioned by God. But to what end? According to the faith of God's elect. Romans ten seventeen tells us that by faith, that faith comes by the hearing of the word and by the hearing of the word of God. Paul to Timothy, I will endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Paul was committed to the chosen of God to preach the gospel, to bring them to faith. That was his commission. That was his high calling. That's the high calling of any, any pastor, any, any, any child of God, if you want to get down to it. The Holy Spirit brings on this faith via the word. Their election is activated by this, this word in, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. 
And then comes justification, the, the gracious act of God by which he declares us righteous. We're, we're, declared, we're declared holy. We, we, we're no longer sinless in the eyes of God. He, he sees the righteousness of his son upon us. Our faith in Christ is counted for righteousness. This faith is a gift from God also. The, faith, the very faith to believe comes from God. It is a gift from God, Ephesians 2. Paul in Philippians 3.9 wrote, Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. There's no righteousness that can come from the law. The law only convicts the unbeliever. Paul didn't say, thank God I was smart enough to believe the gospel. It wasn't that he, he somehow activated this faith within himself. Some preachers like to add to the gospel and hope the people will find it more, more relevant. We've got to we got to spice it up a little bit. We've got to make it interesting, you know. How could, how could sinful man add anything to the glorious word of God? God can and will bring him to himself, the elect, via the word. In John 1.12, this is very familiar, we, or it should be. says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. All that received him. So who are the all? In John 10, Jesus is the shepherd of the all. The all are the sheep. The sheep know him and hear his voice. John 6.37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will by no means cast out. John 6.44 says, no one... This is the words of Christ, by the way. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. In John 6.65, it says, No one can come to me unless it had been granted from the Father, or by the Father. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in verse 5 of Ephesians 1, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. We don't have this weak God that is begging for a relationship. He wants a relationship. Just, just choose God. He wants a relationship with you. It's not that. He will have a relationship with you if you're his. It's unavoidable. That's the effectual call. That's the result of an effectual call. atonement, it was a particular atonement for a particular people. No more, no less. In Romans 9, hold your applause, Calvinist. Verses 6 through 18. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, 
but those who, the children of the promise, are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness within God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared on all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. I had asked the person, if a lady, does God hate anyone? Can God hate? No, God is love, absolute love. Like if you considered <laughs> Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, it's pretty clear. He hates iniquity, those who commit iniquity. The word of God either condemns the unbeliever or it convicts the child of God unto salvation. Both bring glory to God. The doctrines of election are often attributed to Paul, but Paul is just building off the, 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 the truths that Christ had preached. Paul labored for the sake of the elect. It was his mission as a slave and apostle. It was his singular purpose to minister to the elect. And critics say if, if, if people are predestined, then why, do, why preach the gospel? It's because of those that are predestined that we preach the gospel so they may come to faith. It's pretty basic math. Why preach the gospel if we have a weak Savior that's just begging to have a relationship with whoever might have the notion to come to him? Just says, oh, I decided I like Jesus today. It doesn't work that way. The acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The acknowledge here is epignosis in Greek. It means clear knowledge, clear perception of the truth. Another responsibility here for Paul was the edification of the saints via the clear knowledge of the truth. We are edified by the truth. Paul has saving truth in mind here. This is the truth that Paul is relying on in 1 Timothy. Is it all men that he desires? It's pretty clear. He desires all men to come to faith. If he desires everyone, if, if God's will can be thwarted, then all would, if God's will could not be thwarted, all would come to faith if that's his will, right? So what do we have here? It's all kinds. Jew, Greek, Gentile, slave, free. All heirs according to the promise of Abraham in Galatians. 
2 Timothy 3.7 tells us that those who do not genuinely seek cannot come to this knowledge of the truth that saves. That salvation, the believer is then given the desire for all the truth. The, the truth of God is set on him via the Holy Spirit. H.B. Charles, who I get to see next week, says, It is the will of God for the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We can't obey if we don't know. Any obedience we have is solely the work of the Holy Spirit in conjunction of the word. We, we deny ungodliness by, by the strength of Christ. In Acts 20, 32, we learned that the word would build us up. Jesus, the word made flesh. He prayed to the Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. In that high priestly prayer, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth when the truth, the word, the, the word incarnate, the very word of God, the eternal Logos was standing in front of him. He says, what is truth? People say, if God would show himself to me, I might believe. Pilate didn't. Many of the Jews didn't. Godliness is a, is a product of truth. Truth being poured on, out on us, brings about godliness. Godliness is, is grounded in theology. I was, I'd made a trip to North Carolina a couple of weeks ago, and the guy was riding with me, and we were, he was not reformed, and he says, yeah, I think if we just kind of just remove theology, and just get back to what the Bible says. Like, what does it really say? You're already laughing. You know? it's like, <laughs> and I'm just, I mean, like theology? You know, <laughs> like, you just, where are you going from there? How are you, what are you doing? I guess it sounds neat. It's like the people that want to dismiss doctrine. It doesn't work. It's in this hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, promised before time began. Robert Yarbrough says, the practical godliness calls, Paul calls for has a theological basis, more precisely, an eschatological one. It rests in the hope of eternal life. It's on down the road, that hope. We rest in that hope. And we, we think of the idea of hope as something that is possible but not not certain. Elpis, in the Greek, hope to anticipate with pleasure, expectation, or confidence. That's the hope, with expectation and confidence. The ministry of the church is the continuing ministry of the apostles. The apostles' ministry was the ministry of Christ, the gospel being central. And it's preached to bring the elect of faith. 
the word is expounded for, for the edification of the body. The body then, via the, the word and the spirit of God, live out the gospel. It's, it's natural. James says that good works or fruit are as natural as breathing for a believer. We teach and preach the gospel. This gospel truth and the hope or expectation of eternal life that is granted to all that the Father had given the Son. This eternal life was promised by God who cannot lie before time began. Let's look at Numbers 23. God's word says, God is not a man, verse 19. God is not a man that he should, he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God cannot lie. We were just talking in class about things that God can't do. And one of the things that God cannot do is lie. He cannot do something contrary to his very being. He's the epitome of truth. No lie can, can proceed from him. Second Timothy 2.13 says if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Isn't that a wonderful assurance? As we are often not faithful. The embodiment of truth, the object of truth, is the epitome of truth by which no truth be, can be understood apart from him. This promise made before, before time began. And so you got to ask, who was this promise made to, right? No one around, nothing around, nothing in existence, not, not even angels. Christ. Christ is the promise was who the promise was made to. All that the Father has given me, remember. All that, the, that were written in the Lamb's book of life before the world began. Before the foundation of the world, Revelation 17.8 tells us. It is predestined, it is foreordained. The eternal God chose you in himself before the first molecule was created. He had set his sight on you, his children, and promised a redeemer for anything, for all else. It's an amen moment if you're so inclined. I'll do it for you, amen. This is the hope that, was, that is within us that, that Peter references in Second Peter 3.15. The plan of redemption was made before the fall of man. It didn't, it's like, well, I created these, these people and they messed up, so we've got to figure out how to make this right. It didn't happen that way. Before the first speck of dust. We were promised from God to the Son. The Son redeems us that we may, may serve and glorify him. The Son's affection is set on us. He desires us to be with him. 
John 17, 24 tells us. In the future, this, this promise will be made complete, made whole when the elect are, are glorified, fully sanctified, completely made like Christ. To serve and praise him forever. And in this gesture of divine love, Christ gives everything back to the Father. All that he redeemed is it's yours. 1 Corinthians tells us. Divine love. Back in Titus. It says, But has in due time manifested his word through the preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. But has in due time. One theologian writes, The promise of God given and published long ago had never been rightly understood until the meaning was declared through the crucifixion. In Galatians 4.4 4, says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. That was the fullness of time, the arrival of Christ. Ephesians 1. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This due time is the time of Christ in which all promises were fulfilled. This is the mystery made clear. Christ is the word made known. In the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. In the beginning, he was, before anything was, he was. He said that before Abraham was, I am. The preaching, the teaching in Christ, of Christ that we subject ourselves to is the, is the same teaching that Christ preached himself. The apostle preached Christ. We preached Christ via the, the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Kerugma is preaching. Uh, some, some translations say proclamations or proclamation, singular. It's not revelations either. It is making known a, publicly the message of a ruler or council. Um, I guess if you're 40 or so, you might know what a town crier is from old movies or something. A crier went out and, and told everybody the, what the ruler's wanted them to do it's a messenger the messenger sent Paul was an expositor of the divine truth of Christ we, we proclaim this same truth by expository preaching we don't, we don't rely on our own cleverness or, or wisdom we don't try to manipulate or sway the listeners to to uh, employ some kind of uh, response. Uh, we, don't, we don't employ any, any charisma to, to conjure up feelings, though feelings or emotions will, will come. 
or should come when the truth of God is proclaimed. We don't, we don't really try to find relevance in current events to, to kind of interject into whatever made me mad uh, uh, this past week. You know, it's, our running joke is like, I've got a good sermon, I've just got to find some scripture to go along with it. It doesn't work that way. The word of God is eternal. John MacArthur says, we strive to interpret, explain, and apply God's word as clearly and concisely as possible. I think the worst thing a pastor can hear, because MacArthur had this happen to him, he says, uh, one of his professors said, you missed the entire point of the passage. (laughs) You don't want that. There's only one question I ask my wife when I'm done every Sunday. I was like, did that make sense? That's literally all I want to know. We are shepherds. In John, John 20, 21 it was, when Jesus restored Peter, he said, feed my sheep. The word of God is food for the child of God, a.k.a. the sheep. We have the same command. We have the same command as Christ, as Peter made to Christ. And, and as Paul, a bondservant, we have these same commands to feed the sheep. Paul was entrusted to this task. We are entrusted to this task. Second Timothy. It says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Unashamed. Unapologetic. Paul, this bondservant and apostle, was under the command of God, our Savior. 1 Corinthians 9. Sixteen and seventeen, he says, "For I preach the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Whether he likes it or not, he's going to do it." Not long after I was saved, I don't want to say a voice or whatever, but this feeling, it's like, you're going to do that. And I'm like, what? It's like, preach, whatever. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not your guy. Have more Jonah's attitude. <laughs> and then people ask me to teach. Because it's good enough. And it was children's church. I was a children's church pastor, you know, like five-year-olds. It was great. Like, is this good enough? And then when Josh and Richard, Paul, not long after Sean and his family come, Dave and Lisa, we started this church. Josh was going on vacation. 
Hey, you want to fill in for me? No. I do not. And then slowly, <laughs> encouraging me and working with me and goading me. I said, okay. And then it was kind of like a fill-in thing. It's like I'll, I'll just fill in when I need to. And then it became more of a desire. And then he saw that it was becoming more of a desire. He's like, you need to do it more. So here we are, starting Titus. The first time I ever preached was in prison. Didn't want to. Had no intention of it. But we went, and all these speakers were saying absolutely nothing. And one guy was begging, guys, it's going to be too late. Come to Christ. It's going to be too late. It's going to be. He's right. There's no scripture, no nothing. And this one guy was really excited, and he got up there, and he was talking about how great his life had been after he chose Christ. And he started... He, he finally got into some scripture. He said that uh, I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, Philippians 4.13, is it? <laughs> and then he says, we're in prison. He says, I can jump through over a 50-foot wall through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> so I'm just like dumbfounded. And like, you know, I'm like, Lord, this is awful. What's, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. I'm going to stand over here. I'm going to talk to this guy playing pool. <laughs> I was like, no, what are you going to do about it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 came to mind. And I loosely, probably horribly, told those guys the gospel. But I do know one thing, that God's word will not return void. Preaching is simultaneously terrifying and joyful. Heavy on the terrifying. There are days that when I walk up here, my heart is beating so bad that my vision is blurred. And after I say the first stupid thing or slip up, I just figure that it ain't going to get no worse so I can calm down. We have the same command as Paul and all the rest. Feed my sheep. A merciful Father, we thank you for your word, this food that we may partake of. Use it to nourish us spiritually. Or let it not end here. Let us glean and take from this as we leave here. Reflect on your truths. Let it bring godliness and glory and honor to you. O oh, merciful Father, we love you and we praise your holy name. And it's in Christ's name we all pray, and all of God's children said.